God, how long is a thousand years to you? Asked the Christian in their prayer time one morning. My child, God replied, a thousand years to me is like a minute to you. I see, said the novice believer, who then turned silently to meditate on the vastness of God. A few moments later they asked, sorry God, one more question. How much is a billion dollars to you? To me, answered God, a billion dollars is like a penny to you. God, forgive my impertinence, but one more thing. Do you think you could give me one of your pennies? And God said, absolutely, I'll send it in just a minute. Or as Oscar Wilde put it, when God wants to punish us, he answers our prayers. And nowhere can this truth be more vividly and irritatingly true than when we pray for patience. My pastoral advice to you this morning is don't pray for patience, because if you do, then you can expect God to place you in situations where you will have to grow it. Waiting is hard, but God won't be rushed. Waiting is hard, but perfection can't be forced. Waiting is hard, but if we insist on having satisfaction now, then we will undermine our happiness, resent God's plans, and fail to spot the miracle that is today. David had it, and he needed it. Many years earlier, when he was still a youth, God's prophet Samuel had picked him out for a unique and magnificent task, a calling that no one else could answer, the greatest king of Israel. Not the first and not the last, but the greatest. And the one who would create a city where God would symbolically live. It's week four in our summer series, David, Shepherd and King, Sinner and Saint. But for David, it has been many years since those youthful days of carefree shepherding. It's not clear how many, but the smart money is on around 15. 15 years of waiting. 180 months of biding his time, 780 weeks of living with the dream, nursing the promise, protecting the word that God had dropped into his heart. And surely it needed that protection from doubts, fears, rival thoughts, alternative plans. But now the day has dawned. The fulfilment of God's promise is being delivered. Its long, dark gestation complete. Its joyful birth at hand. David's travail ended. And how they will celebrate David and the nation as he is anointed God's Messiah. Well... We can assume there was a celebration, but surprisingly there's no description of it in 2 Samuel. No great fanfare, no big song and dance. 
Neither are we invited inside David's head to feel his emotions during this moment of destiny, this hour of glory. There's just a short, bland account of the tribal elders coming to David and saying, Look, you've been acting like the king all this time. Let's make it official. And they tell him pretty much what his job will be to shepherd God's people. And to emphasise this aspect of mutual service, David and the elders of the nation make a covenant Again, there's no description of the covenant they make. We only know one thing for sure, that by the end of it, the shepherd boy has become the shepherd king. One thing this morning's reading leaves out is that David and his troops march into the city of the Jebusites. A peaceful conquest, without violence or bloodshed, but a conquest nonetheless. This city was to be the palace from which he would rule, the capital of Israel, the city of David, Jerusalem. And 3,000 years later, we're still living with the consequences of that peaceful conquest. Timex, the watch people, conducted a survey and discovered that Americans wait on average 20 minutes when they catch a bus or train, 32 minutes when they visit the doctor, 28 minutes in security lines whenever they travel, 21 minutes for a significant other to get ready to go out. 13 hours annually waiting on hold for customer service and 38 hours each year waiting in traffic. Uh, That's just on the Garden State Parkway. (laughs) And we don't like it. Queuing makes us frustratingly aware of our powerlessness. Houston Airport knows that. According to the New York Times, Houston had a problem. The length of time commuters had to wait for their luggage. They tackled the problem by employing more baggage handlers, which reduced the average wait time to just eight minutes, well within the industry standard. But the customers' complaints did not stop. So airport executives undertook a more careful analysis and found that it took passengers one minute to walk from their arrival gates to the baggage claim and seven more minutes to get their bags. In other words, 88% of their time was spent standing around waiting. So the airport decided on a new approach. It moved the arrival gates away from the main terminal and sent the bags to the outermost carousel. This meant the passengers now had to walk six times longer to get their bags, but complaints dropped to near zero. Because occupied time feels shorter than empty time. Sometimes we are called to dwell in empty places, in the dead spaces between hearing the promise and receiving the fruit, between the implanting of the seed and the birth of the new between the cure for our sick souls and the joy of living symptom-free. 
In one sense, we all live in this frustrating, empty space, this dead zone, this no-man's land. We have received God's promise of eternal life, but we have to wait for it. His pledge of new bodies that won't get sick, minds that won't wear out, spiritual vigour that doesn't seep out or drain away, but we have to wait for it. We have been forgiven our sins and restored to relationship with God, but we don't enjoy those gifts in an unclouded and unbounded way. We are saved from sin, death, separation from God and people, yet we still suffer, still fight, still go wrong, still die. We are stuck in this moment of time. We are not what we were, but we are not what we will be. In the empty space, we doubt our purpose. Was I really called to be Israel's king? We can imagine David asking himself. Am I really called to a fulfilling job, a happy marriage, a peaceful mind, a contented life? We ask ourselves. Maybe God did get it right. Maybe it's me that has messed up. We can imagine David saying. And I've destroyed the promise. Maybe my mistakes are just too serious. We tell ourselves. This time God can't forgive me. This time I've destroyed his plan for my life. This time God can't put back together what I have shattered on the ground. In the empty space, we doubt God, we doubt his perfect plan, we doubt ourselves. Jeff Height doubted too. In 1992, he was a fourth grade student in Portland, Maine. Pamela Triu, his teacher at Lyman Moore Middle School, was teaching the class about the Gulf Stream that flows down the East Coast, then turns towards Europe. She carried out an experiment to show the effects of this movement of air and water. She gave each student a glass bottle and instructed them to write messages with their addresses on paper, uh, then push them into the bottles and screw on the lids. Then a fisherman took the 21 bottles away from the shore and dropped them into the Atlantic. They hoped that some of the bottles might drift to Europe. Three months later, two of them washed up in Canada. Then, nothing. As the days passed, the disappointed children gave up hope of any bottles making that voyage. The empty space of waiting became too powerful, too long, too overwhelming to hold on to the hope. They abandoned the empty space, including Ms. Triu, and returned to normal life. Two years passed. Then Jeff Height, now in sixth grade, received a letter from a girl in Pornichet on the west coast of France. She had found his bottle while walking with her father on the beach that morning. Houston's empty space was eight minutes. Jeff Height's was two years. King David's was 15. What's yours? 
how many prayers are almost answered, but the prayer succumbs to the doubts of the empty space, gives up hope and stops praying. How many lessons of the spiritual life are almost learned, but the Christian succumbs to the dryness of the empty space and stops listening to God. How many lives are almost changed, but they succumb to the pain of the empty space, quit the 12-step group, cease reading scripture, or stop receiving sacrament and word on Sundays. How many marriages are almost saved, friendships nearly restored, relationships tantalisingly close to being salvaged and renewed, but one person succumbs to the challenge of the empty space and gives up. And God was maybe calling them to one more effort to walk one more mile, have one more conversation, endure one more day, forgive one more sin, to give one more chance. Our culture doesn't like those empty spaces. And thanks to our phones and to Amazon's same-day delivery, we think we can avoid them. But God is into marinating, not microwaving. For the truly important questions, there are no instant answers. For the crucial problems, there are no immediate solutions. For the things that make life worth living, there are no easy purchases. God is seldom in a hurry. Not for nothing does Paul call love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control fruit of the Spirit. Fruit grows. It takes time, what someone has called the blessed discipline of delay. I've never looked at the stars through a telescope But the author Annie Dillard has. She writes about one small part of the cosmos. The ring nebula in the constellation Lyra looks through binoculars like a smoke ring. It's a star in the process of exploding. Light from its explosion first reached Earth in 1054. It was a supernova then and so bright it shone in the daytime. Now it's not so bright, but it's still exploding. It expands at the rate of 70 million miles a day. It's interesting to look.